God's word is powerful. God himself explains that to us in very graphic terms. In the book of Jeremiah, we read this. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Or in the book of Hebrews, the word of God is alive and active Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God says his word is like fire, like a hammer, and like a razor-sharp sword. Those are the images you and I need to have in our minds as we turn to our passage this morning. We are in the book of 1 Kings, and we come this morning to 1 Kings chapter 13. If you're using one of the blue church Bibles, that's page 352, and in the larger print Bibles, page 542. This chapter we're going to read in a moment shows us the truth of what we've just heard about God's word. It gives us a look at God's powerful word in action. And before we read this, let's just remember where we are in 1 Kings. Last time we saw the kingdom of Israel being torn apart. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam was in line to succeed him as king over all Israel over all the twelve tribes. But we saw last time Rehoboam was a fool. He listened to the advice of his mates who encouraged him to bully the Israelite people. Rehoboam told them they should expect harsh rule from him. Harder than anything they'd known under his father Solomon. And not surprisingly, the Israelites said, forget that. And forget you, Rehoboam. Actually, ten of the tribes said that. They rejected Rehoboam and made Jeroboam their king, leaving one tribe for Rehoboam to rule, the tribe of Judah. And we saw that the little tribe of Benjamin was included as part of Judah. So last time, we ended with a new look, divided kingdom. Jeroboam now rules the north, which will be referred to as Israel from now on. And Rehoboam rules the south, which will be referred to as Judah from now on. And we saw that Jeroboam's first act as king was to panic. Even though God had delivered on his promise to give Jeroboam ten tribes to rule, even though God had promised to solidify Jeroboam's rule if he would obey God, despite that, Jeroboam immediately started worrying that his people would kill him and go back to Rehoboam. And we saw how Jeroboam tried to prevent that happening. He created a new religion in the north. He didn't say that's what he was doing. He said it was the true religion. He announced it as, here are your gods, Israel, 
who brought you up out of Egypt. So he was implying this was the God you've always known. But in fact, all of it was Jeroboam's own invention. He built two new shrines in the north, at Bethel and Dan, to keep the northerners away from the true temple down in Jerusalem. He appointed new priests. He came up with a new set of religious festivals. He made two golden calves to distract the northerners from the true God. All of it was intended to stop people going south to worship in Jerusalem. And all of it was in direct defiance of God's word. And we summed it up last time by saying Jeroboam tried to use God instead of trusting God. And that's where we're going to rejoin things this morning. The end of chapter 12 told us Jeroboam is just about to make offerings on his new northern altar. But as he steps forward to do that, he gets a surprise in chapter 13, verse 1. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar. Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here. And human bones will be burned on you. That same day the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out towards the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, Intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. The king said to the man of God, Come home with me for a meal and I'll give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, Even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you. Nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. Their father asked them, which way did he go? And his son showed him which road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his sons, saddle a donkey for me. And when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree and asked, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, come home with me and eat. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, 
you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah, This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him and he went on his way. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was left lying on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body lying there with the lion standing beside the body and they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it, he said, Is the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion which has mauled him and killed him as the word of the Lord had warned him. The prophet said to his son, Saddle a donkey for me. And they did so. Then he went out and found the body lying on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside it. The lion had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. So the prophet picked up the body of the man of God, laid it on the donkey and brought it back to his own city to mourn for him and bury him. Then he laid the body in his own tomb and they mourned over him and said, Alas, my brother. After burying him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message he delivered by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places in the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. This is God's word. And let's be honest, it seems pretty strange. It is pretty strange. But we have one key that helps us make sense of this. We know this passage is about God's word. God's word is mentioned over and over and over again in this passage. It's referred to at every stage of these weird events. And once we realize that's the main focus of all this, we can begin to hear what the passage is saying. And we can summarize it like this. God's word is irresistible. God's word is challenged in persuasive ways. And third, it is never safe 
to defy God's word. First of all, in verses 1 to 6, God's word is irresistible. And let me just explain what we mean by God's word or the word of the Lord. It is what God has made clear. It is God's will made clear. So God's word is not just some idea that's in God's mind. It's not something God is keeping to himself. It's what he has expressed. It's what he has let people know. He has let them know what he wants and what he is going to do. God doesn't tell us everything that he knows. He doesn't reveal all of his plans. But when we talk about his word, we mean the things he has revealed. Today, when we speak about God's word, we mean the Bible and the person of Jesus Christ. We are exposed to God's word by reading the Bible and by looking at Jesus. That's where God reveals himself and his purposes to us. Here in 1 Kings, before Jesus came, people were exposed to God's word through the written law of God. They had the first five books of the Old Testament. And they were exposed to God's word through God's prophets. They were messengers who delivered God's word. And in this passage, God's word is delivered to King Jeroboam at a very inconvenient time for Jeroboam. He's just about to cut the ribbon on his new altar. And maybe follow it up with a little speech. I pronounce this new religion open for business. But before Jeroboam has time to cut the ribbon and set off the fireworks, somebody else steals the show. Look again at verse 1. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel. As Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering, By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar. Altar, altar. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here and human bones will be burned on you. Throughout this whole incident, we are never told the name of this man of God. His message is more significant than his name. But why does he deliver his message here to the altar? It's because the altar represents this whole alternative system Jeroboam has created. This religion he dreamed up is all symbolized in this altar standing in front of him. And before Jeroboam has even cut the ribbon on the altar, the man of God announces this whole system is going to fall. And notice where the man of God is from, from Judah, the south, the place where the true temple is. Judah might have a foolish king in Rehoboam, but it is still the place where God said he was to be worshipped, at the temple in Jerusalem. Jeroboam's system cannot succeed. Because it's opposed to God's word. Now that doesn't mean it's going to disappear immediately. We'll see later in the chapter, Jeroboam carries on regardless. 
In the short term, his system thrives. But here at the start, God announces the whole thing is an exercise in futility. It is doomed from the very beginning. No matter how well it might catch on. Those who commit themselves to this are committing themselves to something that will not last. And God says here, a descendant of David, in other words, a king of Judah, will do away with Jeroboam's altar in the future. And God even announces the name of that king, Josiah. Guess how long it was before Josiah arrived? It was almost 300 years. What God speaks about here is fulfilled in 2 Kings chapter 23. 300 years before God's word, God's word, word prevails over Jeroboam's system. But right at the start, God makes it clear. If you commit yourself to this, you're backing the wrong horse. It doesn't matter how popular this is today or tomorrow or next year. It is going to fail and it's going to disappear. And to prove he can be trusted over the long term, God shows his power here in the short term. He gives three demonstrations of his power. Look at verse 3. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and its ashes, the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him. But the hand he stretched out towards the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, Intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. Before King Solomon died, God said his kingdom would be torn apart because of his disobedience. And last week we saw how Jeroboam benefited from that tearing apart of the kingdom. But here God uses the same word to tell Jeroboam what he's building is going to be torn apart because of his disobedience. When we read in verse 3, the altar will be split apart it's the same phrase God had used with Solomon. So the first way God demonstrates his power is by splitting the altar. The second is by paralyzing Jeroboam's arm. And the third way God shows his power is by restoring Jeroboam's arm again. It's all giving proof that God's word is irresistible. Jeroboam is a fool to think he can rebel against God's word and still prosper in the long term. And notice there's an opportunity here for him to give up his rebellion. God shows himself here to be not just the God who will strike down his enemies, he shows himself as the God who is willing to forgive and heal his enemies. 
If they'll forsake their rebellion and ask for mercy. Jeroboam's hand is restored and preserved. And his kingdom could be preserved too. If only he would humble himself and return to God. But Jeroboam never does that. He ignores the warning that God's word is irresistible. And he goes ahead with plans that can only fail. And the application for you and me is this. We must never let ourselves be impressed by things that oppose God's word. It might be a God-defying belief system that seems to be taking over. A system that tries to explain life in the universe without reference to God. That claims this world began by a cosmic accident and developed by random processes. It might be a movement that seems to be unstoppable. Like the current Make your own gender movement. The idea that we can ignore our biological sex and recreate ourselves and our bodies to match our feelings and our inclinations. And we can do that, we're told, without damaging or harming ourselves. Without doing damage to ourselves in the long term. That movement seems to be sweeping all in front of it at the moment. And whatever it is that seems so impressive at the moment, it can seem just as impressive as Jeroboam's new religion did. It swept all before it for a time in the north of Israel. It came from nowhere to dominate the place. And it dominated for a long time. But we've just seen Jeroboam's system is doomed to fail because it opposes God's word. And God's word is irresistible. It will not fail. When we say God's word is irresistible, we don't mean that everyone likes it. We mean it cannot be resisted even by those who hate it and want to overthrow it. History has shown us again and again, nothing can triumph over God's word. Systems and movements and philosophies come and go. Only God's word stands forever. You and I need to renew our confidence in that truth. We need to order our lives around that truth or we'll end up like Jeroboam on the wrong side of history. And if you and I are going to renew our confidence in God's word, we mustn't be surprised by the fact that God's word is challenged in persuasive ways. There is never a time when God's word goes unchallenged. There is no society or culture where it goes unchallenged. The challenges are going to vary considerably from time to time and from place to place. 
But there will always be challenges to God's word. And we see it happen twice in the next section of our passage. The first challenge comes from Jeroboam. He's already tried to silence God's word through force. He tried to have the man of God seized. But that failed. And yet rather than bow in repentance when he sees God's power demonstrated, Jeroboam just changes tack. He tries to silence God's word by another method. Look down at verse 7. The king said to the man of God, Come home with me for a meal, and I'll give you a gift. Look, brother, I realize we and I got off to a bad start, you and I. I was a bit hasty there at the altar, calling my guards and all that. Tell you what, come home to my place and have something to eat. I think I can work out some arrangement with you. Having failed to crush the man of God, now Jeroboam is trying to bribe him to get the man of God in his pocket. But look how the prophet responds in verse 8. But the man of God answered the king, Even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. So now we learn the man of God had received a specific word from God about what he was not to do. And here when that word of God is challenged by Jeroboam, the man of God resists the challenge. No doubt the purpose of God's command was to stop the man of God from being bribed. But the point is, the man of God sticks with God's word. He would be a fool not to. He's just seen the power of God's word in action. And he doesn't even flinch. No thanks, Jeroboam, I'll stick with God's word. But this is where it gets really interesting. Because very soon after this, God's word is challenged again. And this time, the man of God does not stick with it. Why does he react so differently the second time? He reacts differently because the second approach is so persuasive, it catches him out. Jeroboam's challenge to God's word was obvious and direct. But the second challenge is subtle. It's very plausible. It comes from an old man who is described in verse 11 as a prophet. But notice where he lives. In Bethel. In the center of Jeroboam's new religion. So this man has some kind of religious position. But you and I ought to be immediately suspicious of prophets who live in Bethel. We've just seen, haven't we? True, faithful prophets are not welcome in Bethel. Anyway, this old prophet hears about the man of God. He follows him. He finds him. And he succeeds where Jeroboam failed. Look again at verse 15. 
The prophet said to him, that's the man of God from Judah, come home with me and eat. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. Why did the old prophet succeed where Jeroboam failed? Both men make basically the same offer to the man of God. How does the old prophet manage to pull it off? He does it by convincing the man of God they're both on the same team. They're both servants of God. And yes, the old man says, that word you received from God was helpful at the time, but I've got an updated word from God. It replaces the old one that you heard. The old prophet doesn't present himself as a rebel against God. He presents himself as very in tune with God. He's always listening to God. And he's got the latest from God. That's his story. The writer of Kings tells us it's a lie. But the man of God falls for it. He gets thrown off balance by the friendliness of the lie and the persuasiveness of it. God wants me to feed you, brother. It's a message that sounds like it might be from God and it's probably what the man of God wants to hear. After a hard day dealing with Jeroboam who wouldn't want a meal before the journey back to Judah. So the man of God accepts the old prophet's word and yet as friendly and as persuasive as it is, he is a fool to accept it. Why? Because it contradicts God's word. The relevant issue here is not how friendly the old prophet is. It's not how attractive his message is. What is relevant here is that God has already spoken. And what the old prophet says does not agree with God's word. That is all the man of God needed to make his decision. That was his cue to turn his back on the old prophet and head as fast as he could back to Judah in obedience to God's word. God will never contradict himself. If someone claims that God is contradicting himself, we know they're lying. And this is so helpful for us. It shows us that not every lie is going to look like a lie. Not every lie is going to sound like a lie. Very few of us, I think, are going to be hoodwinked by straightforward lies like atheism. We just have to look at the evidence of design in this universe. We just have to notice the human instinct in every generation to worship. 
And atheism becomes hard to swallow when we look at those things. But I think we have a much trickier time with the more subtle, friendly challenges to God's word. We should never be surprised when lies sound plausible and persuasive. It has been that way from the very beginning. Think back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, the man received a clear word from God. Enjoy the garden. It's yours. It's for you. Just avoid that one tree. It's bad for you. It'll destroy you. The word from God was so clear. And when the snake rolls up or slithers up in chapter 3, and when he starts chatting to the woman, the snake does not suggest there's no God. He doesn't say God is not to be trusted. That would be too obvious. He takes a much more subtle approach. Did God really say that? Are you sure you heard him right? We know God's word was clear. But the snake begins by suggesting it wasn't clear at all. And before long, the man and the woman have abandoned God's word for a lie. Not every lie is going to sound like a lie. In our reading earlier from Colossians, we were warned about fine-sounding arguments. We were warned about deceptive philosophy. Those words were aimed at Christians. We have to realize that in every generation, there will be voices, not only outside the church, but from within the church, who claim we've been misunderstanding the Bible for 2,000 years. Voices who tell us, after all, sin's not really as serious as we thought it was. That hell's not as real as we thought it was. That Jesus isn't the only way to God that we thought he was. That God's blueprint for sex isn't as clear and as good as we thought it was. And on and on. And in every generation there will be people claiming to have a new word from God. A word that replaces or corrects what the Bible says. Or that sounds more exciting than what the Bible says. It might be a word that says, it could never be part of God's plan that you would be poor or that you would be sick. It's your lack of faith that prevents you being healthy and wealthy. It might be a new word that says, God has told me when Jesus is coming back. If you and I are caught off guard because those lies sound persuasive, then we, we might well fall for them. But what Genesis 3 forewarns us, and what 1 Kings 13 forewarns us, is that we ought to expect persuasive lies to come our way. And we need to prepare for them. How do we do that? 
We do it by immersing ourselves in what God has said in his word. Keeping God's word fresh in our minds and our hearts. That is the antidote to lies which God gave in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy he said this. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols in your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God says to his people, immerse yourself in my word. Keep my word fresh in your minds and your hearts. When you and I live like that, then lies will be much easier to recognize. No matter how friendly and how persuasive they sound. Persuasive lies are still lies. Lies delivered with a friendly voice are still destructive if we listen to them. That is underlined for us in the rest of this passage. These final verses show us it is never safe to defy God's word. As he sat in the old prophet's house at his table, the man of God might have wondered what harm could come from ignoring God's command. And going home with this friendly, hospitable, generous prophet. But look at verse 20. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat and drink. Therefore your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. That's a way of saying you are not going to make it back home to Judah. It's easy as we read this to get caught up with the fact that this lying old prophet here speaks a true word from God. But that's not too surprising. The Bible tells us God can even speak through donkeys if he chooses to. The significant point here is that the man of God from Judah had no excuse for disobeying the word of God. It doesn't matter that the lie was persuasive. By going home with the old prophet, the man of God defied God. And sure enough, the man of God does not make it home to Judah. He sets off on his donkey, but on the road he's killed by a lion who then bizarrely stands beside the donkey and the dead body. It's a very eerie and a very unnatural scene. It's like an exhibit in a waxworks. There should be some movement in this picture. 
And that unnaturalness is a sign this is God's doing. It's not just something that happened. Nobody walking by this can fail to be struck by it. Why is the body untouched there in the road? Why is the donkey still alive? Why is the donkey still hanging around? One commentator says, this strange scene is the signature of God. In a memorable way, it says to everybody who passes by, it is never safe to defy God's word. It doesn't matter if you've been used in the past to deliver God's word to others. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor who preaches God's word every week. or a home group leader, or a Sunday school teacher, or a deacon, or a musician who leads us in worship every week. doesn't matter who we are, it is never safe for any of us to defy God's word. It's never safe to set his word aside because we prefer another word. We've seen that in the case of the man of God from Judah. And the very end of this passage reminds us this applies to King Jeroboam too. After the man of God came, Jeroboam rebuilt his altar and he just went on with his false worship. But the last verse of chapter 13, verse 34, tells us this. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. It is never safe to defy God's word. But what about the old prophet? He is the biggest puzzle in all of this. In fact, he's the most annoying character in all of this. He tells lies that entice the man of God and lead to his death, and yet the old guy seems to get away with it. But I don't think he does get away with it. We're told he picks up the body of the man of God from Judah, and he buries the man of God in his own tomb. Then look at verse 31. After burying him, he said to his sons, When I die... Bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines and the high places and the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. What seems to have happened here is that this false prophet has seen the power of God's word at work and has become a true prophet. Now that might not seem fair to us, that this deceiver comes to accept God's word by seeing what happened to the man of God who defied God's word. That's the strange thing about God's grace. It can annoy us when God shows grace to people we don't like. 
How could God forgive this guy? How could God forgive her over there after what she did? How could God bless him over there after the kind of life he's lived? But don't you see, that same grace is available to us. We're all defiers of God's word. And that puts us in great danger. We dare not continue that way. But if we'll turn back to God and give up our defiance and seek God's mercy, then we will find mercy. Maybe you have been toying with abandoning God's word. Some persuasive lie has captured your attention and your heart. Even though it contradicts God's word. There's some area of your life where you're making plans at the moment to disobey. Don't do it. Turn back to him. Maybe you are intentionally disobeying God in some way. Then realize you are not safe. Come back to God and be restored. And maybe all of this is fairly new to you. For most of your life, you've been ignoring God's word and God's son. If that's your situation, then I hope you've seen this morning, God's word is irresistible. His plans are going to be fulfilled. You have no excuse for continuing to ignore him. And thank God when we do turn to him, we hear not his powerful word of judgment, but his powerful word of mercy. The word that tells us Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We deserve judgment just as much as that annoying old prophet did. But God has mercy enough for us. If we'll just bow to his word and trust in his son. We're going to take a moment to be quiet so that we can respond to God individually. And there may be different ways that we need to do that. Maybe to turn to him for the very first time. Maybe to turn away from something that is so attractive to us at the moment, but that will take us away from him. So let's do that quietly, and then we'll respond together in song.